You are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. You know, the Waikiki District has been seeing more traffic as daily arrivals surpass the 20,000 mark in the past week. Will that surge continue or drop off? We checked in with Rick Eggett of the Waikiki Improvement Association about the slow but steady rebound in the Waikiki Resort District. Spring break was the turnaround point, but the numbers continue to be there, and bookings for the summer are starting to look good. And again, everything is relative. It's compared to where we were, you know, over the last three months. I mean, we're still not getting to the point where we are approaching pre-pandemic numbers. And, you know, I have seen just walking through Waikiki that there are a number of places that have shut down, either their retail shops or food places. And we understand that there are some lines at, at restaurants as tourists venture out and look for places to eat. That's true. And particularly retail stores that tended to cater to the international market remain closed, like duty-free, because obviously most of our current market is domestic. Yes, I was talking to someone the other day who said that, yeah, the Korean air flight that came in, just 35, 40 people were on board. So it's, you know, very limited flights coming out of Korea. Limited flights. And obviously the reason for that is there's limited demand. And that is because of the requirements on returning home. There's still a quarantine uh, when you return to Japan. I'm not sure about Korea, but I think both uh, Japan and China require that. And so... um, until those things improve, you know, you're not going to see a change in that international market. I have seen a number of those high-end shops that normally cater to the Japanese tourists. You know, they're open, but I'm worried that, you know, yeah, they're not getting the foot traffic and, and the buyers. There are some that are open, no question, but their volumes are, are down, are still very much reduced. I worry that they may have opened too soon. Well, I think many of them were trying to uh, be cooperative and make sure Waikiki was open for the visitors who are here. In Japan, they are starting to shut down some places just because they are seeing more cases spike up. You know, so that's a concern. We're seeing the restrictions on the Olympics. Once the Japanese government determined they weren't going to allow foreign visitors for the Olympics, I think that kind of made everybody target for the international market, we're, they're really looking at 2022. Most do not feel there's going to be any dramatic change. We're still hopeful that we'll see some sort of turnaround in the late fall or into the winter, you know, so that we can get that December-January market. But at this point, uh, that's what we're hearing from our foreign providers. What have you seen in the uh, Canadian market, the snowbirds? Canadian market is is still slow because, again, the borders to Canada are closed. So you have to quarantine if you return to Canada. There are some people, you know, who have residents here that did come back for the wintertime, but then, you know, that's starting to break, right? These are the snowbirds, as you call them. You know, they tend to start to return to Canada about this time of year. And then what can you say about the vacation rental business, you know, because the numbers from HGA show that rebounding, and there are a number of units in that resort area. We're very concerned about that because those vacation rental units continue to be mostly illegal. And the concern in the community over the volume of tourism, that that whole idea that $10 is too many, if you look at the uh, legal part of the visitor industry, that can only accommodate 7 to 8 million visitors a year. That means that entire, you know, 2 to 3 million extra visitors that the community is so concerned about 
comes from vacation rentals and illegal ones at that mostly. And so we're trying to work with the city to move forward on enforcing the law that was passed in 2019 to make it more difficult for those vacation rentals to function illegally. And so we're hoping for progress in that area because, as you point out, the occupancy for the vacation rentals at this point is better than the hotels. And as a community, we've got to get under control. You've got a couple of major projects going on in Waikiki. You've got the beach replenishment, which seems to be moving along at a pretty good clip. That's right. Last summer, we finished the replacing that old Royal Hawaiian groin that dates back into the into the 20s, and so that's functioning really well. And we're that really looks great down there. That project, yeah. And then right now, as you point out, we have what we call the Waikiki Beach Maintenance uh, Project, which is bringing sand in from offshore. So uh, we, we like to call it recycling the sand, bringing it back to the beach from whence it came. And so re- we're in the process now of, of bringing sand in. We're well over 10,000 cubic yards, which the target is 20. Once we've, we've gotten closer to that number, though, we'll begin spreading it along the beach. Right now it's being piled up at, in the uh, Cohio Beach Basin and uh, going through we, we sift it to try and get rid of any rubble, you know, coral rubble that's in it, and then we also let it dewater. And so, you know, yeah, that will hopefully then be uh, um, all pow uh, by the time we get most of our visitors back. Yes, we, we, we hope to, that that project will be completed by the end of May. We're hearing about rental car shortage. I think that the rental car companies, you know, are in the process of trying to adjust that. And, but obviously when the demand completely disappeared here, a lot of those rental cars were returned to the mainland. So we saw at one point when there were no visitors in Waikiki that, uh, you know, back then Mayor Caldwell had started the closure of Kalakaua and he was inviting residents to come back and enjoy the streets of Waikiki. Do you think that's something that you'll see in the future? Well, I think part of the problem, it was ended up being discontinued because I think part of the problem was at the time, it was almost too popular because, you know, we were still in the throes of the pandemic. And as a result, he was a little concerned about the, the crowds being generated. That idea of closing Kalakaua partially on, say, like a Sunday morning, you know, that's an idea that we've uh, worked with throughout the years. So it's possible that something like that could be resurrected, but uh, there's no plans for it that I'm aware of at this point. It's particularly good if you can do something that is low cost, like the, the bicycle and walking uh, event that, that Mayor Caldwell put together, because we had, I mean, you may recall Mayor Harris had the brunch on the beach event that he put on there, but that was fairly uh, a fairly costly event. Anything else that's on your radar, just as we start to see the rebound of the, the tourist economy? One of the issues that has come up recently is the, some concerns expressed uh, about residents about the number of visitors who are not wearing masks. And it turns out, as I looked into this more, I was unaware of the, of the issue. The problem is that our mask mandate does not require you to wear a mask out of doors if you're able to stay six feet away from other individuals or groups. As a result, the HPD cannot, it's not really a, a total mask because people walking outdoors are not required to wear a mask. And I, I was unaware of that. I thought that when the, the, the mask mandate was clarified by the governor that it covered all of uh, everyone. And so everyone had to wear a mask. But 
HPD is telling us, no, that's not what it says. And I went back and checked the wording, and they're correct. The perception yeah. needs to be corrected. Then, right. Because there's not, the people who are not wearing a mask outside are doing nothing wrong. In Waikiki, we have our ambassadors, and our ambassadors always remind people they should wear a mask. Most of the people not wearing masks have a mask in their possession because they need it to go indoors. So somehow the messaging needs to be clarified. I mean, we would prefer they wear masks all the time, but that's not what the order said. Did this come up at the safety conference? It did. And then the other thing is that that also reflects on one of the things you mentioned when we first started the conversation. One of the reasons that the restaurants are full is because their capacity has been reduced, because they have to make sure they keep that social distancing six feet apart. And that ends up resulting in most restaurants running at about 50% capacity. And, and frankly, one of the other issues in terms of being able to, to get more capacity in restaurants is being able to bring back employees and associates and servers who can right. work in the restaurant. So that's, that's an issue as well, because many of those servers were from the mainland and they returned to the mainland during the pandemic. New jobs are going right. to become available, so and I expect those to get filled because there are still people looking for work. That was Rick Egged, head of the Waikiki Improvement Association, providing a snapshot of the picture in Waikiki as tourism appears to be slowly springing back. Long-term recovery for international travel, though, isn't expected until next year. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Ferraro Choi, committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design. Supporting Hawaii Public Radio for more than 25 years, FerraroChoi.com. listening to the conversation here on HPR1. You know, there's a new survey underway about our state parks. So if you feel strongly about recreational uses across the islands, you might want to weigh into uh, what you see going forward. Uh, do you favor protecting natural resources or developing more bathrooms or parking areas near your favorite hiking spot? Or do you think there's a void for motorized sports? We talked to Kurt Cottrell, Parks Administrator for the Department of Land and Natural Resources, about meetings in your community that are underway now about that recreational use survey. Every state has a statewide comprehensive outdoor recreation plan. They typically all get updated on about a five-year cycle. Some states do it a little different. And it's primarily a function of remaining eligible for the states and the counties to receive land and water conservation fund federal dollars for outdoor recreation, either land acquisition or improvements, not for operation. But in the process of doing it, you get a bunch of data from the general public on trends, needs, you know, everything under the sun relating to, to outdoor recreation. So when was the last time we did one? 
2015. Okay, so we're we're due. Yeah, we're a little behind. This one's due to COVID and whatnot. It's you know we had some false starts, so now we're we're right in the middle of of the public outreach part. Well, you know, so what else does this tell you? I mean, we are at a time when we're supposedly resetting our tourist industry. Everybody wants to manage the numbers better because of they're all loving our parks and our beaches to death. Right, um, right. So, you know, how are you folks looking at this time and, and the feedback that you get? Well, you know, this is an interesting slice of time to be doing recreation planning, particularly for the state of Hawaii due to, you know, our, our such our heavy commercial recreation reliance, right, with the tourism industry. And so, like for other states that don't have as much heavy tourism, it's a straight up, what is the, the general public need in terms of their outdoor recreation uh, outlets? And for us here, because of the impact of commercial recreation through tourism, particularly now that we've gone through a year absent tourists, it's a very interesting time to, to pull the population and say, hey, what what do we need to do? You know, what are the the pros and the cons? And, and the first meeting had about 50 online participants, and that was a theme. That was one of the things that came up of managing our recreational spaces in a manner that we don't have to deal with over-tourism. So that is a, a very basic theme that I think is going to come out of this year's, you know, SCORP action. And that we're already, you know, trying to apply that at state parks to places like Hyena, Wayanapa Napa. We're looking at it for Diamond Head, where we're trying to come up with, you know, reservation systems and ways to shrink down usage so we can increase quality, right? So that, you know, in addition to the standard, you know, uh, facilities need better maintenance. The We need better, you know, state and county law enforcement to deal with, you know, car break-ins and homeless and, you know, impacts to, you know, recreational spaces. But also from the, the very genuine, hey, we need more ball fields on Oahu because of the the growth of, you know, of baseball. So there's a, you know, what are the underserved recreational elements we're, we're dealing with? And then you look at the new stuff like motorized hydrofoils and kite surfing and drone operation and, like, using drones for fishing to bring lines out. Uh, all of these are now additional new tech applications of recreation. E-bikes is, is, is going to be a, a thing that managers are looking at on how do you regulate and manage, you know, things like e-bikes where you don't allow motorized use, you know. So the SCORP is, is kind of, in essence, it takes a deep dive into all those issues, and we try to bundle it up and, you know, make some informed decisions on what we're going to do in the next, you know, five years with federal funds and our existing funds on managing recreation. We have a consultant, and, and it's first and foremost, it's a catalog of inventory. You know, how many hunting areas, how many baseball fields, how, how, you know, what are the number of canoe clubs? You know, the whole range of what we can pull on, on what is current and existing facility and then go out to the public and get input on what our public's perception is are, you know, of those needs as well so that we can say, well, here's what we got, here's what we need, and then ideally, you know, program the federal fund request in some manner to reflect you know, the public's, you know, emerging needs. I know that there's a constituency here on Oahu that feels there needs to be more focus on motorized recreation because there's, there's been a disparity of opportunity for, you know, motorized outdoor use. 
And then at the same time, what I'm keenly interested in as a park manager for state parks, there's growing competition and perception of use of recreational spaces that also have cultural values. And for years and years, the state has been very heavily focused on supplying that recreational product in these spaces. And again, primarily because of our, our dependency and, and placating the tourism industry, but at the expense of the sanctity and the preservation uh, of a lot of these, these cultural resources that we have you know, under our belt as well. And with the growing movement of you know, our host culture to kind of regain more control over these spaces on how they should be, I'm keenly interested to engage with the, the Native Hawaiian community on how do we balance out places like Polyhale, where we have Evi Kupuna in the dunes, we have you know endangered plants, it's got its own um, mo'olelo that you know needs to be told and shared, and yet a lot of the, the local residents just want to drive on the beach, park and camp and surf and fish. And how do you how do you manage a balance you know between those where in fact it's illegal to drive on the beach? Anyway, or going all the way over to Kealakekua Bay, where we have, you know, the Naya population that has tremendous host culture value and commercial industry and, you know, local people themselves, you know, going there to go swim with dolphins as a either, you know, recreational thing they do on their own or as a, as a visitor paying someone to take them there and going, well, that shouldn't be happening either. So how do you enforce and pull back some of these things that they have, there's almost this entitlement that you can go do it. Yeah. So it's an interesting time to be doing this kind of planning. Okay. So then uh, what kind of federal funding have we got in the past? That I don't have readily available. I do know that the Land and Water Conservation Fund um, has taken a bump in its uh, the, the allocations that the state gets, and it's managed through the National Park Service. And typically in Hawaii, what we've worked out is every other year the state uses the funds, and then every other year the counties use the funds. And then it's, it's a project-based kind of application process that state parks kind of administers. There's also the Recreational Trail Program, or the RTP fund, which is through the Federal Highways Administration. That fund goes exclusively to the Na'alahele Trail and Access Program for you know, motorized trails, diversified trails, and, and non-motorized trail management. And that fund is, over the years, they both have been getting more and more healthy uh, in terms of the allocations that the states get. One of the, the challenges with the Land and Water Conservation Fund, though, is you can't use it for basic operations. It can only be used for acquisition of, of recreational land or... Um, like as a capital improvement project. So we, we frequently use the federal fund to, as a match or as a way of stretching out the lifespan of our, our capital improvement projects. Here's one of the cool things, though. Once the state or county uses the land and water conservation fund on a particular park unit, then in perpetuity there is a covenant in place that requires that that land be used for recreation. So it's a really good way to invest in open space and protect it from future development. Because if you, if you take it out of recreation, then you have to find equivalent land to offset that, that loss. In if, if you, know, you go from a baseball field to a shopping center, you know, that kind of thing. We've already 
received over a thousand participants in that survey that we we pushed out, and the, the most we ever got the last time we did this in 2015 is 1,200. So we're already way ahead of where we were in the past in terms of engagement with the community on this, which I think is is really exciting. That is. If you can count one of the byproducts of the pandemic is we're all getting more accustomed to interacting on screens, which, you know, saves a lot of money. You don't need airfare and, you know, cafeterias and whatnot. Everybody can participate from their home if they have simply, you know, a, a phone or, you know, a monitor with a camera. We've been hearing from Kirk Cottrell, head of the State Parks Division at the Department of Land and Natural Resources. Kauai hosted its meeting about the survey last night, and uh, more meetings are to be held over the next two weeks. For links to the schedule of meetings across the islands, head to our website. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to experience Joyful Return, an interactive exhibition featuring outdoor pop-up installations across the museum. Opens April 17th, honolulumuseum.org. Joining us for today's Reality Check segment is Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Christina Jedra. She has a story about a bribery scandal at City Hall. Good morning, Christina. Good morning, Catherine. You know, we've been hearing about the uh, case, the indictments against the uh, inspectors over at the Department of Planning and Permitting, but your story is about something else. That's right. There's, uh, you know, five curtain former DPP employees uh, currently facing federal charges, but I discovered another employee who admitted to uh, cashing a check from a property owner back in 2017, but never faced any consequences for it at all, really. No discipline. Um, She wasn't charged with a crime. And in fact, she got two years of paid time off um, on administrative leave. That's astounding. I was reading that headline and I'm like, what? (laughs) Why did it take so long? (laughs) It's really unclear. The city truly has not explained why it would take two years to investigate something like this. Um, I I got some documents from the city through public records requests, and it shows that this employee or former employee um, told a supervisor who interviewed her that she um, cashed a check, quote unquote, without thinking of four to five hundred dollars that was delivered to her at Kapolei Hale. Um, She said she later returned the money. Um, but, you know, she ultimately did approve the, the homeowner's permit that they wanted. Um, and then she was just kind of on a paid vacation for, for two years until I wrote about it last year, um, with minimal information that I had at the time at a few days after I wrote about it, she was called back to work and almost immediately resigned. Um, so Yes, you know, to me, this this story highlights two things that, number one, the city um, and the police department as well knew that bribery uh, or potential bribery could be a problem at DPP and really nothing was done to change it. Um, And number two, you know, the situation really exposes how costly it can be um, in in the sense of how the city handles reports of employee wrongdoing. If if investigations can drag on for two years, um, you're really granting someone accused of misconduct um, kind of an extended vacation. 
I recall the story that you did, you know, uh, talking about the number of city officials that were on paid leave. You know, you had uh, Keith Kunishir at the prosecutor's office and the top city lawyer, you know, uh, Donald Leong, uh, and, and they just were paid, but they didn't come into work. Exactly. That's the story I wrote last year. And while I was doing that story, I figured I'd ask the city, are there any other employees we don't know about that are also on paid leave um, because of some kind of accused wrongdoing? And so this person's um, case came to my attention that way. And so for the past almost year, I've been asking more questions about it. So this story today is the culmination of, of those efforts of nagging the city for answers and documents uh, about the situation. Um, so I haven't heard much from the current administration. They didn't submit to an interview, but they did say, um, you know, that they intend to take these kinds of uh, allegations seriously going forward, and um, hopefully things will be different here on out. And DPP has new people at the helm. I don't know if you were able to reach Kathy Sokogalo, the former director or the, the former mayor, about this case. Uh, Kathy Sokugawa didn't get back to me. She was the acting director at the time. Um, I did speak with former Mayor Kurt Caldwell. He said he wasn't aware of this specific case, but that his administration did the best they could at the time to investigate allegations of bribery and DPP, but uh, they really never went anywhere. He said they couldn't prove it. And then what about the police? Uh, the police say that this case of this employee is still pending investigation. Um, so <laughs> I don't know if we'll ever, you know, see any charges or anything like that. But uh, that's what uh, Deputy Chief John McCarthy told me. And so uh, basically then you've got a request out to the current mayor, uh, just, you know, what's happening and, and uh, what changes might might uh, we might see as a result of the, these uh, investigations. The mayor has said he wants to clean up DPP, but we haven't seen too many specifics about that yet, but I'm staying tuned for, for those updates. Okay. All right. Well, thanks so much, Christina. Thanks, Catherine. That was reporter Christina Jedra with today's Reality Check. Read to Hon- uh, Head to Honolulu Civil Beat to read her story. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering the global MBA with 21-month, 24-month, and 36-month options. Scheidler.hawaii.edu. In a nod to Women's History Month, which was back in March, we saluted women in the driver's seat. Today, we rebroadcast a segment where we talk with Diane peters Wynn, the new CEO of the Hawaii and Pacific region of the American Red Cross a graduate of Kamehameha schools, she looked to her native Hawaiian roots from her grandmother's side for validation that the Hawaii Red Cross was the right place for her to be. It is an amazing history. And I think, you know, Catherine, when I was initially thinking about the job, and it was after Coralie Matayoshi, of course, retired after like 17 years at the helm. And January of last year, you know, this whole long process started and then it stopped because of the pandemic. And then it started up again. But Along the way, I was, you know, I say, is this the right thing? Is this a good fit? And, and then the more I learned, I got connected to the stories and the mission. And so the legacy of uh, strong women leadership in the Red Cross is one of the things that really attracted me. So the American Red Cross grew out of this, this international Red Cross movement in Europe. And Clara Barton, of course, founded it following her experiences on the battlefields, really, of the Civil War. 
and she was just such a pioneer and a you know rule breaker herself she was an amazing woman she started the american red cross and she was almost 60 years old wow and just did so many things that people thought couldn't be done and so you know out of her work then there was a congressional charter in the turn of the century but here in hawaii it was really through the work of Queen Liliuokalani in her final month that um, she, you know, helped launch the American Red Cross here in Hawaii in 1917 and launched, you know, the first membership drive, which was so incredibly successful that something like a third of the island's adult population became members of the Red Cross, including the Queen. I know. That was just amazing for me to read. And then I also learned that what she what sewed the flag and that that's flying at the Diamond yes. Head office. Yes. And so when I learned of this flag that she sewed personally and with her helpers, it flew over Iolani Palace during World War II. And so when I, the first day on the job, I asked to be shown this flag. They took me into where it was on the wall. It's encased, you know, it's in glass and everything. And although it did fly again for the centennial here in 2017. But I just, you know, felt her, the queen's mana coming through, and I just felt like, okay, I'm in the right place at the right time. It's important, though, to make those connects when you're you're trying to figure out, yeah, like you said, is this a good fit? There were just so many stories along the way. So I've been, you know, speaking to different groups. I was last week speaking to a group of women leaders and this week to another women's group, but just... You know, sharing the things that I've learned and then the stories that have connected me along the way. And it's it's really amazing. And I, I feel so grateful to be part of this organization. It's really kind of amazing. Because you took over and we had this pandemic, this health crisis, I know mm-hmm. there was lots of concern mm-hmm. because I think we had a, a hurricane barreling down and was like, how do we do <laughs> yes. this, you know, distancing in a shelter? And do we just mm-hmm. encourage people to stay home if you can or go to someone else's home because you don't want 300 people at a shelter? That's right. That's very true. And initially, of course, with the um, run up to Hurricane Douglas, when I had just started, there was all of that. We had shifted all the protocols to handle the things during the pandemic. And so, like you said, everything from social distancing to doing the health screening when people come in to doing the frequent cleansing. But having, you know, more room at the shelters meant either opening more shelters. In the end, they, of course, opened the Hawaii Convention Center, but still needing more volunteers. And the demographic of our volunteers tend to be, you know, a little bit older and in that age group where they are concerned about, you know, being out and in the midst of people and, and in close spaces. So we really had to and still have to make huge efforts to recruit, you know, a younger demographic and more diverse. And it also has given the, the whole Red Cross uh, really um, a need to focus on having the communities strengthen themselves. And what I mean by that is by looking to these communities, and especially in the rural areas, where, you know, something happens out in Hana, there's one road in and one road out. And that's true for many of our communities here on the islands, as well as, you know, we also cover Guam, which you're from, and yeah. American Samoa and NMI, Saipan. So, but strengthening the communities that we serve means recruiting volunteers from those communities and training them up and not so much of, you know, flying in lots of people from the mainland because, 
that's we found that a lot of the things can be done remotely and so this has been a shift for the whole Red Cross even you know during this 2020 unprecedented right year in terms of natural disasters and while we're getting out of this situation with the pandemic and you know as more people get vaccinated the need hasn't gone away because you know houses still burn down storms keep that's coming right. that's right we say that you know, emergencies don't stop in a pandemic, and neither does the Red Cross. <laughs> and so we have here in Hawaii about every four to seven days responding to some kind of emergency or disaster. So as you said, the most common it would be the home fires, but certainly there's flooding events. You know, even with you know, there's a helicopter crash or a plane crash or when a, a neighborhood or, or block is cordoned off for some kind of domestic shooting or, you know, whatever it may be, the Red Cross is responding. I know that you offer uh, also first aid classes, you know, certification for folks that are trying to become lifeguards or uh, EMTs. So have you been able to, have you been able to pivot with those types of uh, classes and workshops? Oh, great question. Yeah, the Red Cross um, offers lifeguard certification um, and classes for the, you know, beach side of things as well as pool lifeguards. It's, we have swimming classes. Unfortunately, those are on hiatus, but there are weeks continued through the pandemic with our, I just took mine actually, the CPR, AED, and first aid classes. So there's a portion that you do online. So it's kind of a um, hybrid and you need, it's quite extensive. And then you do some of it in person. So that is at our headquarters, which is kind of at the base of Diamond Head there. Still do that. Right. And that, that would just be redcross.org slash take a class. Okay. So some of those things are, are still being offered. And then I guess yeah. we'll just have to wait and see how this pandemic goes and the vaccinations and then see what else you can well, resume. Yes. And as far as the vaccination goes, we're, we're actually now across Hawaii and, and the mainland as well. We have approval to help and assist at mass vaccination clinics. And so here we've been, for the last few weeks, I believe three three or four events at Tripler Army Medical Center. Our Red Cross volunteers have been out, and I got to go in the last couple weeks. And, you know, it was just a thrill to put on the Red Cross vest and be part of that team. And we even had a group of young Red Cross nurse volunteers who were actually administering the vaccine. So, you know, I was only doing the, the traffic control part, but we... You know, we we do, um, we're always recruiting volunteers to serve in, you know, numerous roles and and help out in different ways. Okay. And then I know you just got a a big donation from a company. Yes. What was that? I'm trying to think. Island Energy. Yeah, that was was really exciting. And we just did a a masked check presentation, and I think that was covered. And so, yeah, the need for donations still continues, you know, in fact increases because the push towards having um, what we call non-congregate shelters, you know, putting people up in hotels or motels obviously increases the expenses. But even with, you know, responding to home fires, we will provide for families financial assistance. So if they need to go and buy food or they, you know, need to stay in a hotel, we will provide that assistance. And so, yes, we are always in a fundraising mode. That was American Red Cross Hawaii CEO, Diane Peters-Wynn. It was a segment saluting community leaders during Women's History Month, which we marked back in March.
Support for HPR comes from Malama Ola Health Services on Oahu, offering hospice and palliative care founded by physicians who, with their staff, are dedicated to providing patients and their families with individualized care. MalamaOlaCares.com.